Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, I speak with Bill Harbert on his SEG course, Petrophysics and Geophysics Relevant to CO2 Enhanced Oil Recovery. In this forward looking conversation, Bill shares why it's the right time to discuss enhanced oil recovery, the geophysical method that will have the greatest impact on EOR, one of the biggest pitfalls when geophysical methods are applied to CO2 monitoring, and what will happen when CO2 enhanced oil recovery reaches its full potential. Visit seg.org slash podcast for Bill's full biography and the link to register for his course. This episode is brought to you by TGS. TGS offers a wide range of energy data and insights to meet the industry where it's at and where it's headed. TGS provides scientific data and intelligence to companies active in the energy sector. In addition to a global, extensive and diverse energy data library, TGS offers specialized services such as advanced processing and analytics alongside cloud-based data applications and solutions. Now for our conversation. So what we're here to talk about today is your SEG course, and it's called Petrophysics and Geophysics Relevant to CO2 Enhanced Oil Recovery, a very hot topic right now. Why did you think it was a good time to create this course centered on CO2 enhanced oil recovery? Well, I really think that the the only constant, well, first of all, thank you very much, Andrew, for asking me to this podcast. It's really an honor to to be speaking with you, and it's just incredible to hear your podcasts on the SEG site. I think that the reason it the the thing that really attracted me is uh, the only constant in our human world is change. And for example, uh, even Plato mentioned that nothing stays the same, that that all things change, that if you compare existing things like the flow of a river, you never step across the same river twice. And that's the case in the energy industry where we're absolutely essential uh, to society in terms of providing energy in the form of um, energy-packed hydrocarbon molecules. And, you know, in terms of that consistency of change, there's a situation where excess carbon dioxide has been available and essentially needs to be sequestered or utilized, utilized, for example, in an industrial scale. And these two things, along with advances in carbon dioxide enhanced oil recovery, which has been going on for decades, you know, decades and decades, really led me to become quite fascinated uh, in terms of understanding CO2 and CO2 and enhanced oil recovery. You know, I think kind of the first thing that comes to mind when, when I'm thinking about this is why, why is it that CO2 itself is an especially appealing agent for enhanced oil recovery? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And it it turns out it took me a long time to understand this, and it has to do with uh, chemistry. So, you know, as a geophysicist, I think that uh, dealing with geophysics and understanding geophysics is very straightforward. But for me, wrapping my head around how chemistry works, you know, is tough going. And I have tremendous respect for for chemists. So it turns out that CO2 has some characteristics that make it a really good choice for this purpose. And the first thing is that it's it has a 
a characteristic called miscibility. And in the course, we go over some of these chemical framework. And I'm very happy to say that one of the world's real experts in um, enhanced oil recovery, the chemistry of enhanced oil recovery using CO2 is a good friend of mine named uh, Robert Enick or Bob Enick. And um, he's a professor within the Department of Chemical Engineering at, here at the University of Pittsburgh, where, where I am. And but to get back with this, what does it mean to be a miss, missable? What it means is that uh, CO2 has a chemical property where if it's at the correct pressure and temperature conditions and it encounters another fluid phase, let's say hydrocarbon, liquid hydrocarbon, and it's at this um, correct uh, pressure and temperature phase, it will actually form a single component with the hydrocarbons. So, you know, we're familiar with different fluid phases like oil and water, you know, with um, solid oil, not really mixing where they'll, they'll kind of form a, a layer, a layer structure. And th that is not a miscible fluid, but a miscible fluid is where essentially uh, those two things combine into a single phase. And then that phase can be moved along quite efficiently. The other thing that's really interesting about CO2 in its super critical phase, and again, this is a function of pressure and temperature, is that this supercritical fluid has no surface tension, which is something that's quite hard to kind of wrap your mind around. Chemical engineers or chemists understand this, but for me, this was something that that uh, took a while to, to really understand. So so what that means is that you've got a material, the supercritical CO2, that has characteristics that mimic that of a gas and interact with things a little bit like a gas, but it has the density of a fluid. And that also puts uh, CO2 at a very strong place, it turns out, to kind of scavenge hydrocarbon molecules from a reservoir. And the other thing with CO2 is that it can be much less expensive than other similar fluids. So those things together are just amazing in terms of this element existing with these characteristics. And they just seem, and they've been identified through just incredible work that's, as I mentioned, been done for decades and decades and decades by chemical engineers and the hydrocarbon industry. It's a, it's an amazing material, uh, CO2. Yeah, it's always nice, even though EOR is, is getting talked about a little bit more, it's nice to be reminded this has been going on for a long time. You know, looking at geophysics a little more specifically for it, though, what are a couple of useful methods of geophysical monitoring for enhanced oil recovery? Yeah, that's a great question. And in the course, we cover a lot of these technologies, and they're all potentially useful. And I would also like to say, and kind of, I won't mention specific companies, but putting this course together, it was just fantastic the amount of industry support we had in terms of being able to show very detailed uh, measurements that uh, different monitoring techniques would make. That is, really get into the weeds and in the into the technologies directly from uh, the companies that were doing this state-of-the-art or beyond state-of-the-art surveillance and be able to incorporate these advanced materials in the course. But for me personally, in my opinion, reflection seismic methods are especially helpful and have been broadly applied, and they've been pretty well calibrated with respect to CO2 enhanced oil recovery, or I might start using the acronym EOR here. 
uh, CO2 EOR floods. So um, these methods have been used for decades. Often 4D reflection seismic is done. The tools that are being embedded into tools that a geophysicist or a, someone doing exploration production or ENP operations have become more and more sophisticated uh, in this area. So I definitely would call out uh, 4D and three single survey, single 3D, even potentially 2D reflection seismic surveys as potentially incredibly insightful geophysical monitoring tool uh, to track CO2 EOR floods. In addition, one of the tools that I found extremely interesting is satellite-based surveillance. And this is something called Interferometric Synthetic Aperture Radar, or INSAR, I-N, and then S-A-R, Interferometric Synthetic Aperture Radar, which essentially looks at ground deformations to very high accuracy from, uh, from satellite orbits. So this was something that was developed a long time ago even when I was a graduate student, which is really a long time ago. Um, and what it does is it essentially can track millimeter, potentially millimeter ground displacements, changes in the elevation of the Earth's surface from a satellite system. And this, uh, I'm going to use that acronym INSAR again for inter interferometrics and Aperture radar, INSAR. These INSAR measurements can be made time sequentially. So, as with the reflection seismic survey, we can collect a baseline of these data, for example, uh, that shows what's going on for this particular reservoir before a CO2 EOR flood begins or an injection begins. And then we can start collecting this data as the injection progresses. And there have been several very interesting results that show that essentially the ground deformation, which is extremely minor, and I mentioned that we're looking at just uh, millimeters of ground displacement, just tiny fractions of inches, uh, can actually show us how, how the CO2 flood is behaving in the subsurface. And something that's especially interesting is that potentially the accurate interpretation of these INSAR measurements can also show when a flood or an injection is interacting something that we might be concerned about, which would be a fault or some something that would essentially redirect or make less efficient our EOR flood, that we can actually detect that interaction from space uh, with respect to um, analyzing INSAR measurements. So I would like to say that in the class, we talk about gravity, electrical and electromagnetic, and of course, uh, log-based methods, which are especially useful. But if I had to choose two, I'd say uh, reflection, reflection seismic and INSAR are uh, quite interesting in terms of um, monitoring. Well, looking at the, the other side of things that, that might positively impact EOR, what, what do you see as one of the, the biggest pitfalls when geophysical methods are applied to CO2 monitoring and enhanced oil recovery? Yeah, that pitfalls question is really an important question. It's a critical question. And um, it's something I think as geophysicists that always has to be front and center for us. Because as we know, geophysics is an underdetermined system, you know, and we just live with that. And by that, I mean that our geophysical 
response that we see, for example, from INSAR, which is looking at um, surface deformation or 4D seismic, which the the seismic response is quite complicated and a function of the material properties, the fluid properties, the stress properties, the pore filling phase properties. Those have many parameters that they that they de- depend on. And in addition, our geophysical response can be influenced by a wide variety of scales. And by scales, I mean essentially things like, um, are we looking at a phenomenon that is being averaged over uh, ten, tens of feet or tens of meters, you know, and we're looking at that average response, or is this something that we're looking at maybe to a few centimeters or inches, or are we looking at the mineral, the mineral and pore dimensions themselves, which could be uh, extremely tiny, tiny dimensions, you know, literally at the, the scale of individual pores or um, individual throats between pores. And so we, in geophysics, we have this underdetermined system that's also multi-scale. But, you know, it's okay. It's, it's all good because we have our understanding of the, the physics that's, that's driving these phenomenon as kind of our foundation and framework. But it does get a little bit worse uh, for us. And we have to keep in, in mind, I think, that the framework that our geophysical measurements sit in is that of a Really, what we're doing has to do with information and information content. That is, we're trying to extract um, information from measurements. Um, These could be reflection seismic measurements or INSAR measurements. But the idea is we want to extract information content from them. And so information theory is is very well understood. So just from that, we know that there can be misidentifications. So we can say something is there when it's not. Uh, we can look at some place where, where we decide uh, it isn't, and we'll say, you know, make this other error. This is called type one or type two errors. These are misidentification errors where we essentially identify um, a particular location and uh, let's say uh, where we think there's CO two, and we could make one of these basic um, classification mistakes. So I think that. The biggest pitfalls are misunderstanding the uncertainty of our measurements and not fully understanding the physics and the equations that we're using to define the geophysical response. And in the course, we kind of take both of these on, but they're difficult questions, right? As with change being the only constant, we just have to make our very best effort to kind of um, rein them in. Now, the good news with this is that the uh, tools that we have are becoming increasingly sophisticated in these areas also. And it's the usual thing where as our challenges evolve, so do our tools. And I suppose this is a relationship that just defines us as a species. We take on harder and harder problems and they require more and more sophisticated tools. And so I think the biggest pitfalls uh, are really not fully understanding the physics of what we're doing and not quite understanding the uncertainty of our measurements and then for the therefore the confidence of our labeling with respect to the product of our interpretation. Well, speaking of uh, challenging problems, we're, we're speaking today on Monday, August 9th, when the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just released a, a major new update to, to climate change. How large of an impact do you think enhanced oil 
recovery could have in reaching a net zero carbon goal? This is the trillion dollar question. It really is. And um, in my own work, uh, I'm honored to have an adjunct appointment at the um, Energy and Public Policy Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. And, and I, I really have no skills in economics, but uh, this group uh, has incredible skills with respect to economics and sometimes called gate to grave CCUS systems, where CCUS stands for um, carbon capture and utilization system. So this is the, a very important, important question. So researchers at institutions like Carnegie Mellon University uh, in Pittsburgh or the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas have written very thorough reviews of this exactly. So in my personal opinion, the industrially scaled, uh, upscaled subsurface use of CO2, I think it really represents low-hanging fruit towards reaching a net zero carbon goal within industrial economies such as ours. In our course, we, you know, it's a pretty full course, but we touch on this a little bit as we wrap up. And I would like to just call out a really excellent paper amongst many, many excellent papers uh, that just came from the Gulf Coast Carbon Center of the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Houston in Austin. And they really looked at this in some detail, like tremendous detail. And the bottom line is their study shows, and I quote, that all CO2 EOR operations produce negative emissions oil during the first few years of production, end quote. I always like to kind of get get our guests to think big picture and, and kind of dream a little bit. So if you would kind of state and finish this sentence, when CO2 enhanced oil recovery reaches its full potential, it will? Yeah, that's really an interesting, uh, interesting question. And I'm going to to say it will be so ubiquitous, people will, will forget it exists. And by that, I mean... The perfect technology is invisible to most people because it just exists. And I'm afraid in the energy industry, in the ENP industry, we've kind of obtained that where I think every geoscientist in the world has a story about sitting next to someone in 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 an airplane. And as they talk to that person, you know, the person will say, well, what do you do? And you might mention something about energy or whatnot. And you'll find out that in general, the common person, the average person really doesn't understand where these hydrocarbon energies uh, come from. For example, um, are there big caves filled with liquid hydrocarbons or did they, you know, how exactly did this all work and whatnot? And what was the history of it or the scale of it? And the reason that that's not particularly important is that it, well, it is important, but the reason that that's not particularly known is that this is kind of an, an easy for the, our society. These resources just exist. So they exist uh, where they're needed, either natural gas coming in, you know, f- uh, for heating and cooling or liquid hydrocarbons for fuels, you know, jet fuel, for example. And this is an example of kind of a, an, an invisible technology. So I think that CO2 EOR will become so widespread and quickly that it will kind of match this kind of disappearing from public view. So that's what I think that 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 is kind of my prediction. I kind of give you give you the option here, choose your own 
adventure, if you will. If you could speak either directly to the CEO of an oil and gas company or a policymaker, what would you like them to keep in mind with CO2 enhanced soil recovery? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I, it's extremely important. So predicting the future is very difficult. However, changes are only constant. And I think understanding the past is the key to understanding the future. So looking at the past, we know that technologies change and potentially revolutionize in, environments and industries, that there can be disruptive technologies. So disruptive technologies for a group of adapters like early adapters are tremendous opportunities. They give us Microsoft and Apple and Google and extremely successful companies. So early adapters can reap great benefits. And that is what I would say to, to the CEO. You know, the CEO is looking at an extremely complicated landscape. It's zero sum often where to go in one way, they have to not go in another. That's just the, the nature of reality. But uh, early adapters can reach great, can reap great benefits. And conversely, those who adapt to new conditions, technologies, and economic opportunities too late can be left behind. So I think that CO2 EOR is something that, that needs to be seriously considered and looked at. I'm going to say by essentially... Uh, you know, almost all all groups associated with um, subsurface energy activities, which is, you can tell I've really drunk the um, Kool-Aid with this, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that that is good. You want someone well-versed in this, uh, especially as you're making a course about it. You know, you want the best information possible. You know, lastly, to, to help our audience, I think it's always nice to get some helpful advice from people that have made successful courses like yourself and, and teaching right now, what one piece of advice would you offer someone that would like to succeed in this field? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think the thing is to be a lifelong learner. And I think that uh, the most important thing to succeed is to really prepare, see what other people are doing, and understand kind of how these things work, you know, to be a tinkerer. And by tinkerer, I mean like someone who you have a, a complicated thing, like a, a car or something. And um, the first thing you do, for example, is you study so that in to jump that to the geophysics thing, you understand kind of what you're observing. And then you understand the uh, exact, exactly what's feeding into those observations. And to kind of put that into this area, the, that means, you know, the particular properties of CO2, the interesting chemistry that's involved, the subsurface conditions, and then kind of the, the, the ways that you can get a proxy or an, uh, an estimation of parameters that you're really interested in the subsurface. So, so you kind of understand that, that physics and those underlying equations and how they're put together. And then you just see what other people have done, what's been successful, and just look forward and move forward. Well, I appreciate that nice conclusion to this conversation. I appreciate your time, Bill, and, and for creating this course as well. We'll link all of the information to find the course, as well as additional information on some of the other resources that you've talked about today. So thank you again for your time this morning on this nice Monday morning. 
Yeah, I, I can't thank you enough, uh, Andrew, uh, for this and your podcast. And I've got to tell you, this is the best Monday ever here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. To receive the latest episodes first, follow Seismic Sound Off on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bakamjan, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.